I want you to go back with me to the beginning of this century, to the year 2000, Y2K, remember that, and all the things that were going on at that time. I want to take you back to two non-events, like the uncola. We could call these the unevents. You probably remember the Y2K bug that supposedly threatened life as we know it, where all the computers in the world were supposed to be unable to handle the calendar change to January 1st, 2000, Y2K. Doomsdayers made big money, trying to tell us that power grids were going to shut down, the spillways on dams would lock up, your money in a bank would just somehow disappear because the computer couldn't handle it. So people stocked up on food, on generators and water. We put a propane heater in our house in Payette, just in case. <laughs> probably wouldn't surprise you to learn that the Y2K bug that threatened life as we know it when the calendar rolled over wasn't the most significant event or really unevent at the time. Power grids did not fail across the map. Bank commuter, uh, computers did not wipe out your wealth. In fact, the worst thing that happened to me was even before the end of 1999. As we came up to the year 2000, just to see, I went in on my computer and I set the date on my computer to 2007, just to see if I was going to have a problem. No glitches. I worked on my computer all day, didn't have any trouble whatsoever. But when I reset the date back to 1999 and I checked my daily calendar on Outlook and my things to do list, I discovered my things to do list was still up in the year 2007. So I still had eight years to get it done. <laughs> Some of us had a lot of needless worry in those days, and a lot of people profited greatly from our worry. No, the worst wasn't the Y2K bug, nor was it the most significant. As the year, as the calendar turned to the year 2000, and then over to 2001, which is the actual beginning of the new millennium and the new century, our calendars mark something completely unnoticed by the vast majority of Christians in America. Actually, it was another non-event, a very significant unevent, a great unevent. The 20th century in the United States of America was the only century in our history, the 20th century was the only century in our history when God did not visit our nation with national revival or what is called an awakening. God moved across the entire landscape of America in the 17th century, in the 18th century, the 19th century, but in the 20th century, there was the big unevent. Now, of course, there have been pockets of revival in local churches, in colleges such as Wheaton College, where the students experienced revival in 1950 and again in 1970. There have even been whole cities like Portland, Oregon, following a Billy Graham crusade in 1992. The city experienced a revitalizing work of God. But in the 20th century, nothing on a national level. Nothing like the great awakenings in our country and the national revivals recorded in Scripture. In the 18th and 19th century in our country, all of America experienced what historians call the great awakenings. The great awakenings. Three of them. The Great Awakening, or what is now called the First Great Awakening, occurred in the late 1730s to 1740s. You might recognize names like David Brainerd, who worked among the Native Americans. George Whitfield, John Wesley, I know you recognize that name. Powerful evangelists who came to our shores from England. 
John Wesley and George Whitfield were best of friends, even though one was Calvinist in his theology and the other was Arminian. They remained best of friends their entire life, preaching to thousands at a time in England and in the southern colonies in America. Whitfield declared God's word to those who were the called, the elect. He believed that the called need to know they were chosen. And thousands upon thousands, as he spoke in the open air to 20,000 people at a time, everybody could hear him, and they came to Christ. And preaching to thousands at a time, primarily in England, Wesley proclaimed the word of God to whosoever will shall come, not just the elect. Yet God used the preaching of both these men in incredible ways. Then, of course, in the Great Awakening, there's Jonathan Edwards the great theologian and Puritan preacher whom God used to spark revival across New England. And we still enjoy much of the fruit of the Great Awakening in our church today. For the first time in the Great Awakening, hymns were sung in the local church. That's where we trace the beginning of hymns. The church in America and England sang hymns in the church for the first time. Isaac Watts, who wrote 750 hymns, when I survey the wondrous cross, we're marching to Zion, joy to the world. Charles Wesley, among his 6,000 hymns, he wrote, Hark the herald angels sing, O for a thousand tongues to sing, O can it be, which is still considered the greatest hymn today, Come thou long expected Jesus. Slave trader turned preacher, John Newton wrote amazing grace, glorious things of thee are spoken and others. The hymn book that we use today is a reject result of the Great Awakening. <clears throat> now, the Second Great Awakening stretched from the mid-1790s to 1840. You'll recognize 1790s to 1840. That's really kind of the birth period of, of our nation as our Constitution was written shortly before then. Now, the church buildings were not large enough for the crowds that came to hear the Word of God. So tents were set up, and they had the great camp meetings. And God did a work on college campuses and the American missionary movement began. For the first time in England and in America, missionaries were sent out from our shores. The Baptists in England, their first missionary was a Baptist uh, by the name of William Carey, the first missionary to be sent out. The Baptist United States sent out Adoniram Judson. And the Second Great Awakening started the foreign missions movement in America. American missionary work began in a haystack during a thunderstorm. In 1806, during an awakening at Williams College in western Massachusetts, Samuel Mills and four other students hid themselves in a haystack to avoid a, thunder, a summer thunderstorm. While they were there, they united in prayer and they pledged themselves to go as missionaries wherever God might lead. Out of this group went the first American missionaries. The Second Great Awakening also saw Francis Asbury. Maybe you've heard of Asbury Theological Seminary. Francis Asbury was one of the multitude of circuit-riding Methodist preachers who crossed the American frontier on horseback, thousands of miles in their lifetimes on horseback. Some communities only had a preacher once a month or every other month. But people came from miles around to hear God's word. And then the second great awakening, there was the evangelistic preaching of Charles Finney, who pioneered the idea of the altar call. 
Ten thousand, tens of thousands of people came forward to confess their sins, to repent, and to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, the third great awakening of the three occurred over a span of only a couple of years, 1857 to 1859. But its effects were felt for several years. Revival broke out up and down the eastern seaboard and from Texas to the Ohio Valley. In New York City, businesses would close for hours at a time. Wall Street was closed for two hours at lunchtime so people could attend prayer meetings. 10,000 people gathered daily for prayer in New York City alone. The same thing was happening all over the country. At one location at a prayer meeting, a sign was posted, prayers and exhortations not to exceed five minutes in order to give all an opportunity, not more than two consecutive prayers or exhortations, no controverted points discussed. The Third Great Awakening also set the stage for revival among the troops in the Civil War. Even in the midst of tragedy and death, God did a work. In the North, 200,000 soldiers were converted to Jesus Christ, while in the South, it was at least 100,000. Christian History Magazine calls it the untold story of Christianity in the Civil War. There was revival among the slaves. There was revival in the camps. There was revival in towns and cities, even in the midst of that great tragedy. Also, the Third Great Awakening set the stage for the founding of the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA in Chicago, and set the stage for the evangelistic ministry of, of D.L. Moody. During this time, Francis Fanny Crosby, the blind woman who wrote over 8,000 hymns, was just cranking them out. <laughs> and the Church of Jesus Christ was singing her hymns. Historians call these remarkable movements of God on a nation the Great Awakenings because of the tremendous impact they made on the problems of society. Revival and awakening are related, but an awakening occurs when the revival of God's people pours out into the community and souls are awakened to Jesus Christ. Revival is among the people of God, and awakening is when that revival pours out into society and there's a change, a marked change in society. Awakening is where large numbers of people outside the church are converted, and the revival brings a reformation of the culture of the nation to some large degree. God not only revives his people, but the period of God's blessing over the nation lasts for several years. Life as we know it in our nation changes dramatically. Life not only changes in the churches through revival, it changes in society and culture through awakening for an extended season of time. So whether it's the revival in a local church, as we would like to see here at Grace Baptist Church, or it's an awakening that spills out in the community, it's not like the unevent of the Y2K bug, a lot of talk <laughs> and no transformation. And should God visit revival on Grace Baptist Church or choose to awaken our community, our country, life as we know it will change. I just put down some of the examples of changes related to culture and society, and they include the fact that six of the first nine colleges in America were established as a result of the Great Awakening in the 18th century. All of the Ivy League colleges were established for the purpose of training ministers 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My, how that's changed. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Brown, Cornell were all established for the training of pastors, for training ministers, preparing them and educating them to preach the gospel and pastor local churches. Now, some of the best impulses for social reform in America's history have also come from awakening. The anti-slavery movement in America was mainly a part of the reform movement at that time, generated by the Second Great Awakening, as were other movements for prison reform, child labor laws, women's rights, suffrage came out of an awakening, as well as inner city missions. Across the globe, the abolishment of slavery in England in the 19th century under the leadership of William Wilberforce is credited the evangelical revival. I still have on my list of what I want to do on our Sunday night movies to show Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery and how that came out of the revival of, of God's people and the, the awakening. In fact, it's been said that what revival did in England, that is abolish slavery, it took a civil war to do in the United States. Now, one of the best descriptions in history where the revival of God's work touched hearts and lives in tangible ways comes out of the Welsh Revival of 1904. It's estimated that in 1904 in Wales, 150,000 people came to Christ. There were new hymns like, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, came out of the Welsh Revival as people expressed their devotion to God with new faith. Coal miners who received Christ sang in the depths of the earth, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. As they were working, they were singing these hymns. The pubs and the bars were emptied. One writer summarizes what happened this way. Dance halls, theaters, and football matches all saw a dramatic decline in attendance. The courts and jails were deserted and the police found themselves without any work to do. The story is told of policemen who closed their station and formed a choir to sing at the revival meetings. Long-standing debts were repaid, church and family feuds were healed, and a new unity of purpose was felt across denominational divides. Perhaps the most dramatic change that took place was that which worked in the hearts of the miners. Coal mining is far more romantic is far from the romantic occupations often portrayed as. These men did backbreaking toil in cramped conditions with the constant threat of roof collapse and explosive gases. Yet when the Holy Spirit touched them, he transformed their lives to such a degree that the pit ponies could no longer understand instructions given to them, so accustomed had they become to receiving blows and being sworn at. The men worked with renewed vigor that set production figures soaring. When work was done, they would hurry home for a quick meal and a bath and then be off to the chapel until the early morning hours singing hymns as they went. There was a new excitement about eternal things. Family devotions and public prayer meetings were started and continued regularly for years. The sales of Bibles increased to such a degree that the shops sold their entire stocks. Everywhere there was a new spirit of prayer and an urgency to preach the gospel. The effects of the revival were not confined to the principality. Reports of the events in Wales were distributed internationally in newspaper and magazine reports, and the Holy Spirit repeated what he had done in Wales from America to Australia. 
Notable among the 150,000 estimated converts of the revival are Rees Howells, who founded the Bible College of Wales, and David Lloyd George, who became the Prime Minister of England. Revival changes life as we know it in the church. Whether it's localized or just one church or more than churches, life as we know it in the church changes. Awakening spills out into the landscape of our community. I guess there's a question we can think about these days, and I just throw it out so we can think about it. What is America's true hope? It's the hope that the Holy Spirit would move in the hearts and the lives of his people, reviving and revitalizing them, us, so that the work of the Holy Spirit through us, his people, would spill across the nation and into our, our landscape. Nehemiah's chapters 8 and 9 describes the first great revival recorded in Scripture. It's a revival in the sense that God renewed his work among his people. God edified and, and built up his people. It's also awakening in the sense that it had tremendous cultural and national impact. Today we're just going to hit the high points of Nehemiah chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9. Then over the next several weeks we will study these points in depth as we pray that God will do a his intended work in us through the ministry of his word and the mobilization of his people. That is always what revival does. There's the ministry of the word, the proclamation of the word of God, and the mobilization of his people. Now, so just so you know where we're going, to, going in the next few weeks, and I've put these, you'll find these three main points listed in your, your outline this morning. Because these three main points are essential concepts in any and all revivals and awakenings. These are characteristic of revivals. All three characteristics center in the concept of worship. Worship as it's related to scripture. Worship and the word of God. So I want you to write out in your margin of your Bible, in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, verses 1 through 8, Verses 1 through 8, put a little bracket or something there. And I want you to write, worship in the word of God, or worship in the word. Worship in the word. Next to verses 1 through 8. And then next to verses 9 through 18, the rest of that 8th chapter, it's worship in the word of God and celebration. And celebration, if you just want to, do shorthand, you can put plus celebration. <laughs> That's what I put out in, in the margin of my Bible. Plus celebration. Worship in the word of God plus celebration. And then lastly, the first part of chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, it's worship the word of God and confession. Or shorthand, you can put plus confession. But before we see briefly how these three concepts flow together, I want to show you something in verse 1 of chapter 8, that's also characteristic of revival. The 8th chapter of Nehemiah, the first verse. Then all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. It, it's really kind of amazing here. We are not told how or why the people gathered. You know, there, there were no, where they do that on the internet where they flash something and then all of a sudden people show up at the same place at the same time to do something. You know, all of a sudden, here's all these people in front of one of the newly completed gates, the water gate, which was near the pool of, of Solomon. And so that's why they call it the water, the water gate. But there's nothing about whose idea was it to gather here? 
let alone where they gathered. Nothing about invitations being sent out. Nehemiah isn't even in the picture except as we see later that he was a participant among the people. He's not even listed as being on the podium in verse 7. Ezra the scribe, whose teaching of God's word plays a significant role, didn't invite the people, didn't come from Ezra. Verse 1 says that the people invited Ezra to bring God's word, the book of Moses. Bring a Torah scroll, the first five books of the Bible. The people gathered as one man, and they told Ezra, bring out the book of the law, which the Lord had given to us. We have come together as one man to hear God's word. They wanted to hear and understand the word of God. This is characteristic of revivals in Bible, in the Bible and in history. God's Spirit began to move in the hearts of his people as they hunger to hear the word of God, often at geographical locations, sometimes miles and even oceans apart. The Wesleyan awakenings in the British Isles coincided exactly with the Great Awakening in America. The 1790-1830 English Evangelical awakening in Britain occurred simultaneously with the Second Great Awakening in America. In the so-called Haystack Revivals in the Third Great Awakening, people all over the country, separated by distance in the rural areas, on college campuses, in the great cities, began gathering for prayer and hearing God's word and responding to God's word. At first, without knowing how far-reaching this revitalization was. Each group, hundreds of miles apart, thought they were the only ones. According to Christian History Magazine, one of the characteristics of spiritual renewal is that Christians recall past outpourings of God's grace and power and long to see them again. When history of awakenings have been written in later years, it has been discovered that individuals at great distances and completely unknown to each other prior to the awakening had been praying simultaneously to the same end. When God begins a work in the local body of believers, he starts to move in the hearts of several people, all of us to the same end. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people gathered as one man in the square in front of the water gate. And as one man, they asked Nezra to bring out God's word. It shows us that revival can't be programmed. Now, programs may serve to facilitate revival once, begin, once God begins to move in our hearts, but there are no steps to revival or sure-fire methods. I googled that yesterday. Came up with more hits than you can imagine. Steps to revival. You know, people made that mistake in the 20th century in our country. In the Third Great Awakening in the 19th century, thousands of people traveled great distances to participate in what God was doing. They went to the great camp meetings. The people stayed in tents, and at the camp meetings, those preaching the word of God did it out in the open because of the size of the crowds. And some of the camp meetings, especially those in Kentucky, every hundred yards or so there was another preacher. And people would gather around these preachers and crowd in. And then they would stay in, in, their, in their tents. Now local congregations, when people returned from the camp meetings because of the, the large crowds that were coming and there's little white clapboard buildings that couldn't hold all their worshipers, they put up large tents to hold their worship services. Now, by the 20th century, people began to think that the tent was the key to revival. If we put up a tent outside our little almost building, people will come and we're going to have a revival. We will build it and they will come. Then they begin to schedule their revival meetings on the calendar. 
They tried to program that which cannot be programmed. Our own seeking for rivals should always be grounded in prayer, grounded in a hunger for God's word, and total dependence upon God. Because in prayer, we notice or we recognize and acknowledge that God is not only the source of revival, he's also the sovereign God. He is the one who is in the heavens and according to 115th Psalm, he does whatever he pleases. Revival is not something that human hands or wills can produce. It's something that only God provides according to his good pleasure. When King David led God's covenant people in bringing together the gifts and the resources required to build the temple, he praised God with the words that we read as our call, not our call to worship, but our offertory scripture this morning. Blessed are you, O Lord, God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything, everything is yours in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. From the human perspective, if we looked at it this way, God's people brought what they thought belonged to them. They brought their gifts to the Lord. They took out of their earthly goods, out of their resources, and gave it to God. From God's perspective, however, and this is the proper perspective, God motivated the hearts of his people to bring what he already owned, which is everything. And if this is true of physical things, how much more true it is of spiritual things. When the Christian prays, he or she is asking and thanking God for things which are at the disposal of someone else, our God. We pray because we recognize that God is the author and source of everything we have or hope to have. J.I. Packard summarizes it this way. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we are on our knees, we know that we are, that it is not we who control the world. It's not in our power therefore to supply our needs by our independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God and will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from his hands. Even in our own church body here at Grace Baptist Church, if we are to see God do a great work of reviling us, revitalizing us, his people, and mobilizing us to go into our community and outreach and witness, it will because as one man, we respond in humility, fully dependent upon God in prayer. So I just want us to close with briefly looking at our outline in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9. It shows us how God's sovereign will intermeshes with the responses of God's people to bring about his intended spiritual result. And I hope you like to write in your Bible, because I'm going to have you underline some stuff and, and circle it here very briefly. Because the first characteristic of true, true revival is worship in the word of God. We find that in, in verses 1 through 8 of Nehemiah chapter 8. But specifically, we see it in, in verse 6. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshipped. Circle the word worship there. They bowed low and worshiped. Worship in the word of God. Go down to verse 12. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to, 
to send portions and to celebrate a great festival. For the first time in hundreds of years, they were going to celebrate the festival of booths. Circle to celebrate a great festival. You got the King James Version, it says, to make mirth. To make mirth. Circle that. Verse 18, you'll see they celebrated the feast. Circle that again. They kept the feast. Now go to verse 3 of chapter 9. We find the word worship again. Well, they stood in their place. They read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. This section is the teaching of God's word and, and worshiping God. Worship in the word of God. The second characteristic is worship the word of God in celebration. And we already saw that. That's in verses 9 through 18. But if you look at verse 12 again, they celebrated a great festival, the celebration, the Feast of Booths. And then we find it, let's see, oh, in verse 10, well, the one I wanted to point out. Then they said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Circle the word joy there. Worship the word of God in celebration. And the last in Nehemiah chapter 9, the first five verses is worship the word of God and confession. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 9. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law the Lord their God, for a fourth of the day and for another fourth they, what? Confessed. There it is again. Circle the word confessed. Worship in the word of God. Worship in the word of God and joyful celebration. And lastly, worship the word of God in the confession of sin. Quite frankly, at this point, I don't know all that this means in God's heart and in God's mind, what he has for us. But life as we know it as Grace Baptist Church will change. But I do know that this section of scripture in Nehemiah will certainly make a greater mark than a Y2K bug on a windshield. <laughs> and sometimes that's all we ex expect, isn't it? It will certainly not be a great unevent. As each one of us seek him, as each one of us study his word and humble ourselves in prayer before him, God is going to begin to work in our hearts. And to help you to do that, I mentioned earlier that uh, the sermon outline also contained a study guide. And so if you go to page three, it's Revival in the Word of God Prayer Study Guide. Uh, for March 5th, which is today, 2017. So I say a little bit about revival, and then I take you into to God's word in Matthew chapter 13 about the soils. And I trust that you will use this for God to prepare your hearts this week for what he has in store for us. Shall we pray? Father, even as I was studying the revivals and awakenings in our history and studying God's word, and I, I've really given revival and awakening 
study for years, Lord, and uh, every time I do and every time I read of these things that you have done in times past, Father, I, I always think, wow, we need that. I want that, Lord. We want to see those kinds of things happen among us, Father. And I pray and trust as we study your word and we hear the teaching and the preaching of your word and we humble our hearts before you in these days, Lord, even as we come to the Lord's table today, Father. And I like to call it the celebration of the Lord's Supper because that's what it is. It's an act of worship. It's a celebration. It's recognizing that, Lord, everything that our Savior Jesus Christ has done for us by dying on the cross and saving us but he also sanctifies us and has sent his Holy Spirit to work in us, Lord. And all the good things that you continue to do in our lives, Father, as we come to the table, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in each one of our hearts. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.